Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Eli Fader and Rabbi Aaron Zimmer. Rabbi Eli Fader earned a PhD in mathematics from the CUNY Graduate Center and received his rabbinic ordination, Yore Yore and Yadin Yadin, from his Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Chait. Since 2004, Eli has been a mathematics professor at Kingsborough Community College and a Magidshir at Yeshiva B'nai Torah. He has published many papers and delivered numerous talks in graph theory, which is his field of mathematical research. After earning a physics degree and receiving rabbinical ordination from his Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Chait, Rabbi Aaron Zimmer utilized his personal resources to venture into commodity futures trading. His strategic approach was deeply rooted in the conceptual frameworks of physics and the intricate Brisker method for Talmudic analysis. After an 11-year career marked by success in commodity trading, Aaron decided to retire. In his retirement, Aaron channels his intellectual energy into studying various branches of knowledge, including the Talmud and physics, as well as lecturing at Yeshiva B'nai Torah. Their new podcast, Physics to God, discusses some of the most fascinating developments in physics and makes a convincing argument that points directly to the existence of God. Without further ado, Physics to God. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. So I have on for the first time, two guests at the same time, which is Rabbi Eli Fader and Rabbi Aaron Zimmer. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I've had Rabbi Fader on before. We did the Gematria episode with Bensi. Um, and tonight my special guest host, co-host is Zeb Godkin, who was on previously with Dr. Brian Keating. So we felt this would be a great, um, you know, opportunity to have a similar conversation. Um, so first, before we start, if you can both tell us about yourselves and your background. Sure, sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. So let me tell you a little bit about myself. I, um, I come from a background from a home which has a strong commitment to Torah and a strong commitment to, I guess you call it Tarakharats, to making a living towards knowledge of the world, science, philosophy, psychology. My father is a, is a rabbi, but he's also a lawyer. He's in business. My grandfather is a rabbi, Ismichaf and the Rav, and also he was a chemist. So again, I have a strong valuation for both setting up a life built around Torah, but also a life which pursues Chachma Sashem in a broader sense of the term. And I guess as a kid, back from the time I was a kid, I was always a math guy. I was like that kid in class who was good in math. So that was just me. And it was like a thing, it was a natural thing. I was always interested in math, good in math. I was always interested in sciences in general, but specifically math was my thing. So um, I guess as I went to college I, and I learned in yeshiva, so I decided, again, I knew I wanted, I was interested in Torah. I wanted to teach Torah. It was so really attracted me a lot. At the same time, I also wanted to make a living and I also valued a career, valued knowledge in a more broad sense. So I ended up going to graduate school. I got a PhD in math. And now currently I'm a rabbi and I'm a math professor. And that's kind of like a balance. It's always, again, my, I feel like my involvement, my intellectual involvement is in Talmud Torah, but also in math. I read the research, math research. I publish papers in a field called graph theory. And that's kind of, um, you know, I'm very involved also in Besides math, also studying physics and science and psychology, philosophy, that type of thing. And Rabbi Zimmer. Okay, so that was that was Ellie. My name is uh, uh, Aaron Zimmer. Thanks for having us on. We appreciate it. Pleasure. Uh, I 
I went to, um, I got a degree in, in college and in, uh, physics. And while I was getting my rabbinical ordination, um, I've always, I was raised in a modern Orthodox community. So I've always had in a certain sense, one foot in the modern world, science and, and um, secular studies and one, you know, one foot in religious and uh, Judaism and Torah. And um, after finishing college, I didn't, I wasn't sure, quite sure what to do. I didn't, I decided not to go to any graduate program. I wanted, I had a lot of other interests that I wanted to do besides just focusing on physics. So I ended up trading commodities, uh, commodity futures, like uh, oil and gas and cotton, sugar, things like that. And after 11 years, I was able, I was fortunate enough to be able to retire. And now I, you know, I make this podcast, Physics to God, and um, basically I have the time to really engage in studying Torah and then Gemara. I learned with Ellie, we've been learning for over 20 years now, um, having other chavrusas and also being able to study, you know, different areas of, of interest to me, physics, philosophy, psychology, amongst other, other different areas. Amazing. Cool. And you guys, how did you get involved with uh, fine-tuning? Okay, so fine-tuning, um, fine-tuning, that's what our, our podcast is uh, at least starts about, um, the argument from fine-tuning, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more what exactly that argument is, uh, just in a most basic background. Um, it's, it's an argument that seems to indicate from the laws of physics that the universe uh, must have uh, an intelligent cause. And um, basically the, it started out, it was 15, 20 years ago. I came across this book by Lee Smolin called The Life of the Cosmos, which talks about these numbers um, that are, or quantities maybe is the better way to say it, quantities that are part of the laws of nature. So for example, you know, the simplest one I think to, to convey to people is, um, uh, an electron. Everybody's heard about an electron. So electron has a certain mass, how big an electron is, how much it would weigh. Um, and that's a specific number. It's a specific quantity. It could have been bigger, it could have been smaller. It's something that's almost like fundamental. It's built into nature. Every single electron has the same mass. And I was reading in this book how if these, this mass was different of the electron and plus other, other quantities in nature, how if this mass was different, you wouldn't have atoms. Atoms wouldn't exist. And you wouldn't have molecules or stars or planets. And, you know, then Lee Smolin went through a bunch of different, different ones of these constants, these quantities. And he was discussing how, like, these numbers are so essential. They have to be exactly or very close to, to the value that they have in order for the universe to really work, to, to be the wonderful universe that we know about. And I was struck by this is incredible. Like how, how exactly, where did these numbers come from? And so was he. So, and he was a physicist. He didn't believe in God. And, um, you know, he had proposed his own theory. He mentioned some theories scientists had. And they were really, they weren't very good, the, the alternative theories. And I was really, I was pretty kind of shocked. I came to Ellie, I'm like, Ellie, this is, this is unbelievable. This is like, this is like the best argument I've ever heard for the existence of God. I mean, he wasn't making... You know, the, the, Lee Small wasn't making that argument, but I was blown away. It was just better than anything I'd ever seen before. Um, and I've been looking because, you know, it's, again, I was modern orthodox. So in a sense, there's always this dichotomy you have between um, religion and the secular world, the modern world. And you're always trying to, at least for me, I was always trying to integrate those two. I didn't want to um, have a dichotomized existence. You know, like the Rambam introduces the, uh, in the Mora that, that, you know, he doesn't want 
The Rebbe Ram says he writes the Gemara because he doesn't want a person to have to choose between their intellect or their religion. They should be able to harmonize the two. And I kind of felt that in the in the modern world that it was almost you're being asked to to do that that you know choose either to have you know put your intellect on the side and have faith and believe or um, or to you know or embrace your mind and and then you kind of can't be religious. It was it wasn't really presented very clearly to me. Um, Judaism in a really compelling way that integrated my intellect. And here I, I saw something, at least for the foundation of religion, for for God, which is the you know the basis of it all. That really seemed a compelling argument. Um, so that really struck me. I, I gave um, I got together a few of uh, my friends, maybe, and I you know gave like a, a little lecture to them. But I mean, I kind of left it at that. What exactly are you going to really do with this? Um, you know, what, are you gonna, what was he going to do with that at that point in time? And um, I kind of left it at that after, you know, after a little lecture. And, and, and it was, you know, and that, that, was, that was where we stopped for that temporarily. But then from there on, then it was... For us, especially going, adding on to Aaron's point, is that in this world, in the modern world, there's many atheists, scientists, who like to say God is outdated, we don't need God anymore, the whole thing is make-believe. And that's something which we hear, I'm sure a lot of you, a lot of you listeners have heard it, and I feel like in a certain sense, being religious is somehow looked down upon by the scientists of the world. And specifically, I think when it comes to, I guess, biology is one of those areas, because again, for many, many, many years, it's always been this idea of life, the complexity of life and design, and that shows that there's a God. and I guess nowadays with the theory of evolution and, you know, Dawkins and um, and all these different uh, atheists, they kind of have this sense that, no, you don't need um, you don't need intelligence to explain life. Rather, the theory of evolution explains it. And therefore, there's no need for a designer. And that whole argument, they feel that's all out, um, you know, ancient ancient types of things. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback. There's a big discussion whether the argument from biology still holds up or doesn't hold up. And there's a lot of there's a, there are two sides to the story. And it's, you know, one may, might be convinced, one may not be convinced. It's it's hard to push that case. And when I remember when Aaron had told me about this, this book that he was reading, and he saw this argument from physics, it's like totally it hit me. I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. This is a totally different type of an argument. Because see, when you're dealing with biology, biology is like emergent from a long chain of chemistry and physics. And it's like, it's not a primary phenomena in the universe. It really is um, results from, uh, from, other, from other factors. And that's the question is, how did biology get started? Is it, again, the claim is it's from a long chain and chain and chain of life and either simpler and simpler. And then how did DNA get started and all the different building blocks of the DNA? But that's, that's a question is, does the theory of evolution, does what they call the multi-planet solution, do these things really explain the emergence of life or do they not? And there's big debates. But this argument or this discovery of what we're going to talk more about, a fine-tuning of these numbers, the laws of physics are the, like the most fundamental foundation of our universe. And our universe are, the, these are like the building blocks of our universe. They didn't evolve. As far as we know, these numbers, which Aaron is talking about, they call them constants, the constants of nature. And they're called constants because as far as we could tell, every measurement that scientists have ever made of them, these numbers are constant. The mass of an electron is always that exact same number, every single electron throughout the entire history of the universe. And the laws of nature, they're fixed. 
the laws of gravity, the laws of electromagnetism, the laws of, as far as we know, there's no evolution of the laws of physics. These are the fixed built-in laws in our universe. And therefore the types of critiques, arguments, which people have on the argument for design from biology simply aren't applicable to when it comes to physics. These are like baked into the very fabric of our universe. And when Aaron, when we discovered this based again on Smolin's book, it was like, wow, this is unbelievable. This is something different. And it kind of got us interested in being able to, I guess, to show it, to share with other people. Uh, just a, I wanted to ask about the four cosmological constants. Um, they, I, I have read that there's research that technically you could create a universe. Uh, I don't know about with life um, if you altered them, but it would have to be across universal values. Is there anything you, you would have to say on about that? Uh, what, what do you mean? Can you explain a little bit more? So they say that these four numbers, the, the numbers that you're you're talking about, they said that that you could tinker with them, but they but I've read that you would you would have to change all the equations like across the numbers would often change across universal values. So it's not like yes, if you tinkered with one, the whole thing would would fall apart. But if you I guess adjust for all of them, like they could the numbers could be different in theory. And that's what I've heard. I don't know. What, what do you do that? Right. Yeah. In, in theory, there's, um, it's funny. It's funny that you turn like just six numbers, maybe from uh, Martin Reese's, his very popular book that came out a little over 20 years ago, where he talks about these numbers. Um, so there's, you know, he, he had six numbers in that book. Um, maybe you're thinking about that, what you say in the four numbers, but um, say 25 of these constants. So it's true if you if you um, if you move let's say one of them you don't have atoms things like that but in theory if you move a bunch of different ones uh, maybe you'll find um, a different a different combination that would work um, and that's 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 true that's possible um, the point ultimately becomes though that almost all different combinations don't work so even if there's um, out of the space of you know a trillion 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 different combinations even if you know the one one we have works maybe there's ten other ones. Just, just a theoretical it's really have to kind of make like a space a space of different possibilities but it, it, in the end of the day it ends up not making a difference uh, the fact that there might be other possible combinations that work so long as the vast majority of them don't work it becomes unreasonable to say that just if, assuming there's only one universe that we just got lucky by chance and it happened to be right you know it, it ends up not, not really mattering the fact that there's a few other possibilities that might allow for planets and stars and galaxies and life as long as the vast majority don't work but but that's 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 correct like there, there are definitely people who argue something like that but it doesn't ultimately affect the argument in any qualitative way so going back to how you guys started um why did you decide to make this more public like what happened that you guys obviously had the blog year um so what what made you guys decide that this is what you want to do Okay, that's, um, it's funny, actually, that it had to do with that book by Martin Rees, um, Just Six six Numbers. It's funny. Um, I came across that, you know, a few years later. And, um, and that was really when I was first exposed to the alternative scientific theory, um, the multiverse. So Lee Smolin mentioned it in the book, but he discarded it as like kind of ridiculous. He, he didn't like it then and he doesn't like it now. Um, and, but Martin Rees was proposing it and it seemed like a lot of scientists were saying it. And the multiverse is this belief 
um, that there really are this infinite number of parallel universes that we never can observe. Uh, and in each one of these universes, these constants are different. They have different values. And it's like if you have an infinite number of universes with different combinations for these numbers, then by chance, of course, you're going to get one universe, which happens to have the constants the way we have. Now, it's true, 99.9%, .9%, like I was saying before, the overwhelming number of these universes have no planets or stars or atoms or, or life or anything like that in them. But you don't see those universes because you can only observe a universe which has life in it. So that's what the multiverse says. Of course, you happen to be in the one universe which has life because you can't observe. No intelligent observer could ever exist in the universe without these things. But they really believe there are these infinite number of universes, the vast majority of parallel universes that are completely unobservable that exist that nobody can see. And they were proposing this as like scientists were saying this as a, as a good possibility for them to explain the, the value of these constants. And once I realized, you know, you have to like think it through, what exactly are the problems with this theory? Right away, it just doesn't seem, it just, it struck me as completely outside the normal scientific method of, of analysis of where they make, you know, predictions and observations compared to experiment. All of a sudden here, scientists were positing this infinite number of unobservable universes. It sounded like it was science fiction. It didn't seem, didn't seem right. You know, you have to, I to like, you know, analyze and look into it. It's, it's a little bit more of a sturdy theory than initially I thought. I thought it was really crazy when I first, when I first heard it. Now I think it's just a bad theory, not completely crazy, but just, just not good. But, um, but, but when I, I just first saw it, I'm like, wow, this is, this is it. This is the way you can bring this public because it's very hard to convince people that there is a good argument here because they're just, it's, it's, it's physics. And you have to explain, even if you explain it to them, what these constants are and why they have to, why they are fine tuned. If they changed a little bit, you go through the whole thing. If people always had this certain doubt of like, okay, I don't know, it's physics. What does it really mean? What would scientists say if they, if they, if they, I'm sure they, because scientists don't believe in God or a lot of them don't. So how would they explain this? But now all of a sudden I had this, 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 theory of the multiverse, I could show people, you know, this is what scientists are saying. And you can see for yourself that they're not, they're not, they're not saying a science, regular scientific theory, like evolution, natural selection, like in biology, that's a real scientific theory. Now, again, do you want to say it explains everything in life? It's a different question. Okay. But it's a real scientific theory. There's real evidence behind it. There are fossils in biology. There's a whole, there's evidence, there's data that it's based upon, but in physics, I mean, there's no fossils in physics. There's no evidence for these infinite numbers of, of alternate universes, or it's certainly very weak at, at best. And it's, it's, there's no predictions and there's no observations that confirm this experiment, completely different type of thing. I realized that if you just, this is the way to show people, show people articles or videos about the multiverse. And that's gonna really convince people that there's a real good, strong argument over here for the fine tuning in physics. Right, so the time at the time when, uh, when we started seeing this, we started hearing scientists started putting out videos about the multiverse and it was kind of catching, you know, people, people started picking up on it. Nowadays, I think the word multiverse is, you know, hear it from all the movies and like Marvel and all that. But this is like maybe 10 years ago where it started becoming more and more accepted by scientists. And we saw it as an opportunity to use the, this, the prevalence of this belief to show people there's a real problem. Fine tuning is a real problem. 
And the other alternate solution, like we, we're going to argue that it points to God, but the alternate solution is infinitely many universes. And if scientists are saying that, something's up. There's a real problem here. You can't just ignore the fine-tuning. And at the time when we, when Aaron and I, we had a lot of conversations about this. So at the time we were currently, as you guys mentioned, the blog was here. So we had, this was in this time when blogs were big. I don't know if they're so big anymore, but so we had, we had a blog where we were using to teach Torah, to teach a brisker derach, and we called it blog Oshir. And we, this is right what we were doing, we were writing these pieces of Torah. And then we says, you know what? We already have an audience. We have people who are teaching Torah too, and people who are interested. Why don't we take this line of reasoning, which is, again, a class Aaron gave to a few guys, and they were interested in it. Why don't we try to actually write it out and spell out the argument? And sure enough, we decided it was one summer, and uh, we wrote like 20, I, guess, I think you mentioned that you guys read it a little bit, but we had wrote like maybe 20 blog posts, and there was a lively conversation. We had a large group of people who were involved. You know, most people who are religious, but then we had like one or two atheists who were on. It became like a lively discussion, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. And um, we really, you know, it, it helped us develop the argument, help us spell it out. We got pushback, we got questions. And it kind of, it was very, you know, it was a nice uh, experience to be able to really go through and write out and put out the argument in a more concrete form, which was, again, it was initially just like an intuitive argument. and it, But then we actually made it more rigorous and spelled out the different steps. So, Rabbi Zimmer, I'm actually interested because you mentioned that at first it was ridiculous and then it was just bad. So there's a progress there. Um, why? <laughs> why is it? Why did it become better? Just because. Uh, uh, you know why? Because like when you first when you first hear hear it, you think that scientists are are saying um, that if you have an infinite number of universes where everything happens, then you're going to have one universe where anything you want happens that, you know, you get the constants exactly right. Um, it's actually a really subtle point here. Um, <laughs> and um, that's what I originally thought. And that just becomes like really crazy because then you could literally explain everything um, by that theory. Because, you know, there is a multiverse, I mean, scientists say this, there's, um, <laughs> there's a multiverse where People, um, people get out of their graves and wake up and you have Tchiasim And there's signs to talk about that, that there's a multiverse where that occurs. It's, it's crazy, Tchiasim occurs. There's a multiverse where the sea splits. Um, there's a multiverse where pink elephants walk on the street because it, it's, you have to appreciate the idea of infinity. If you really have an infinite number of universes, then anything that's not in violation of the laws of nature, and almost nothing is a real violation of the laws of nature once you take into account quantum mechanics and probabilities that anything possible can really happen. You know, these things don't really violate the laws of nature intrinsically, they're just statistically improbable. But an infinite number of tries, everything happens. Um, that's just a really, that's really a crazy theory, completely crazy. Scientists in fact, aren't saying that, they're saying something a little more subtle. And this is this is the, ultimately the undoing of, of multiverse. And it's a, it's a subtle point where we, we're gonna discuss it. Uh, we'd have, have to, it has to be developed, but they actually hold that in this infinite number of universes, the most typical universe that has intelligent observers looks like our universe. Okay, so that's, again, it's, it's, it's a subtle point. We're gonna make a separate, um, on Physics to God, the, the podcast, uh, we're gonna make a separate mini series about the multiverse, which you have to explain this, um, this point that scientists do maintain and they have to prove, which is ends up becoming the whole undoing of multiverse. Um, they have to prove that or, or, you know, prove or whatever, I have to establish in some compelling way why our universe is the typical or most common universe that has intelligent observers. 
Um, so that's that's like a subtle a subtle thing. And um, because of that requirement, because of that requirement, it's multiverse is not completely crazy, but because of that requirement, that ultimately is becomes their undoing. How they have how they tried to solve that problem. Right. Well, one thing I've always wondered with with the multiverse theory and my discussions with people about it is how much of it is just a way, a creative, not creative, but you know, like an a, an innovative way to explain the seeming fine tuning. I like have an alternative and how much of it is based on some solid like mathematical discoveries and you know i mean i know it's still theory but cosmic inflation has really taken over in the world of physics it's it's kind of um i, I most physics most physicists with some exceptions uh believe that that is what got everything started so um like how much of it is just like an alternative explanation to Oh, you don't like fine tuning, so we'll we'll make this. And how much of it is really based on uh, the principles? They think it's a they think it's a natural byproduct. Maybe uh, the multiverse is a natural byproduct of cosmic inflation. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's I think it's a combination of of those really those two things and plus one more. So one is it's called eternal inflation. Um, also a little bit of a complicated topic, but when they try to model the early universe, like you're mentioning, there is this theory of inflation that the universe expanded really rapidly. And basically the simplest ways to model that, if you don't want to fine tune that, because they don't like fine tuning scientists. So they don't want to fine tune that. The simplest way to model it leads to this growth of other universes in this, uh, you know, bubble universes, they call it, and eternal inflation, you get these infinite number of universes. And that just comes out of their natural theory, trying to model inflation. Um, again, some scientists, scientists who hate, there are, there are real scientists who hate the multiverse because they see it as undermining science, which it really does. Um, and they say, therefore, you know, so either model inflation in a different way where it's, you know, maybe more fine-tuned, but you only have one universe. That is, after all, the job of science to explain our one universe. The job is not to explain universes we don't see. The job is to explain the one universe we do see. Um, or they say, you know, inflation is not a good theory, but you know, explain it a different way, but scientists who do like the fear of inflation, and that is in the mainstream of, of science, it does seem to naturally lead to these, all these other universes. Um, second of all, they, they had this theory called string theory. And string theory, um, it was originally intended to explain our one universe. Um, and it eventually it became known that string theory explains an incredible number of possible universes, 10 to the 500. And scientists are always looking for a unique explanation of our universe. That's what science has always been after. Why is our universe the way it is and not some other way? And because they had this theory of string theory that led to this description of all these other possible universes, they said, hey, if there really are these, all these other universes from eternal inflation and string theory, maybe it's not such a big deal that it's not a failure of string theory that doesn't explain our one universe and explains all these other possible universes, maybe they really exist. And then you have the fine tuning of the constants and everything becomes wonderful. You package all those three things together. You explain fine tuning. String theory is no longer a failure because the universes exist. Eternal inflation and you get this the multiverse and a synergy of all these different things met together. And that's really why the, the popularity of multiverse really rose because it kind of put together eternal inflation, string theory and fine tuning of the constants. So really the whole concept that, that really always bothered me was that you know it's it seems like it's just a you know moving of the goalposts 
because you know we with the big bang theory it introduced the idea that you know there is a beginning and it seems as if this is what that is a reaction to but it's an unfalsifiable argument it's it's you're you're saying something that cannot be measured or proved so so like it it almost it's almost just like an it seems as if like the scientists are just uncomfortable with the beginning is that is that a correct assessment in your in your eyes uh, the scientists are definitely uncomfortable um, with the idea of a beginning. Albert Einstein, um, he, he, what he called his, the greatest blunder in his life was introducing this term, the cosmological constant. Um, and it ha- it's ironic, it comes up in, in the whole fine-tuning. Cosmological constant in 1998 was the discovery of the, it's the most fine-tuned constant um, that we have. But it actually was really introduced by Einstein, a completely different um, framework to explain why our universe, um, according to, and I don't want to get too technical, but when Einstein first discovered general relativity, it led to the idea that the universe could be expanding. That was the natural interpretation of general relativity. The problem is if our universe is expanding, it seems to imply that in the past it was smaller and eventually it has a beginning. And Einstein didn't want to, he didn't like the philosophical implications of a universe with the beginning, because what happens before that beginning? It seems to imply a creator. And Einstein didn't want to say that. It was seemed unscientific to him. So he, he posited this cosmological constant, which was this highly fine-tuned thing in his theory. It's really fine-tuned to be used a little bit equivocally by me now. But he, he did that in order to make like this eternal universe, a steady state universe. Um, and then when Hubble discovered um, that the universe was in fact expanding, that the galaxies were receding from us. Einstein changed, you know, he said, forget the cosmological constant. I was wrong. It was the greatest blunder of my life. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, um, I shouldn't have gone away from the natural interpretation of general relativity, which implies the universe has a beginning, a big bang essentially, um, in order to avoid that philosophical implication. And that idea of scientists not wanting the philosophical implication of a God who either created the universe in the Big Bang, that's again, not, not an argument from the Big Bang, or fine-tune the constants, design the laws of nature, all these different things, that's definitely there. Scientists are loath to admit into their philosophical framework the idea of an intelligent creator. Because, you know, and, and I don't really want to speculate um, why. Maybe, Ellie, maybe you want to explain yeah. why. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so you know, I'll be a speculator. but. <laughs> but I think like um, I think most scientists, as a lot of people know, they've encountered religious people who have this idea of God and it's not very worked out. And it's kind of, you know, sounds like magic, sounds like make believe. And it's it's like they the scientists know that they know irrational religionists who just you're not solving anything by saying God. And OK, you just wave your hands and say God and pretend all the all the problems go away. And because I think people have been exposed to you know, unsophisticated versions of God, just different ideas of God, which don't really explain anything. Scientists aren't just going to say, oh yeah, God, you say God, now you solve all the problems. They they just know that that's not, it doesn't talk to them. They don't have a sophisticated idea of God. They, and, they reject um, the same God that we reject. Yes, exactly, exactly. We reject, I know, that's like when we read these books by like Dawkins or whatever, it's like in a certain sense, there's so much animosity against God, but yeah, I reject that God also. And there are the ideas about God they're attacking that if only they knew about Yichar Hashem, if only they knew the Torah's idea of God. Maybe that's part of our argument and part of what we're going to do in our podcast is that 
we need to show that the idea of God is cogent. We have to formulate it and show, and we, well, this is what we're going to show, is that the argument actually leads to a, a good, clear, cogent, rational formulation about how to, how to think about God and how to answer the questions which scientists ask about God. I think that's part of the idea is because they don't have exposure to such a thing, they don't have any sophisticated view of religion. Their view of religion is based upon what they learned as kids and they rejected as kids and their next door neighbor who's kind of a, not really rational has this idea. So they just, God isn't an option. And because God isn't an option to them, so now when they see these things, they say, well, it must be a multiverse. So at least multiverse is scientific in some sense and you can do the math and you can do equations. And that's like a, a better version of God for them than to have the things with their religious friends maintained. So in order for our argument to, to be sound and to, to actually lead to God, we have to show how God isn't subject to the same questions. Like if we'll say, well, who designed the, 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 who designed the universe? We'll say, oh, it leads to an intelligent designer. So they say, well, who designed the designer? Who fine-tuned the fine-tuner? And you really, all these questions show that you're not really solving anything. And therefore, for our argument to stand up, we really have to do that. And we plan on doing that. But but it's interesting because who designed the designer? The multiverse is an even greater leap than God. Yes. So yes. So that's that's part of what we have to you know that's part of what we have to make rigorous and to show. Again, it sounds that way, and that was this was our intuition when we started when we did the blog, and you know it sounds that way. It sounds like do you rather believe in infinitely many universes where everything possible happens, or one God who created our one universe? So there is an intuitive argument that way, but at the same time. To really be convinced by it, we have to go into the nitty-gritty of multiverse and see the their supports and see the problems and see something which we're going to get into called the measure problem and see why it really fails in the in its claims. And then we also have to show we could just say, "Hey, God is less of a jump," but we have to answer the questions. Otherwise, ultimately, you're just left without any good theory. You could say, "Okay, God isn't good theory. Multiverse isn't good theory," and we just say, "Okay, we have a mystery. We don't really know." So that's our argument: is that no, it does point to God. Multiverse doesn't really work out. It doesn't explain, doesn't meet the claims which it, which it suggests that it does. And God actually is a good theory. And it actually leads directly to the idea of Yichar Hashem, which is formulated by Lizeth Rambam and the Rishonim. And it actually is a cogent theory, which is directly pointed to by this argument. And just to strengthen what you just said, I mean, I, I'm i novice, you know, when it comes to science. I love science, but I'm obviously not an expert like you guys. Um, but, you know, I, I was watching the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Hitchens. Uh, there's a video of him just admitting that the fine-tuning argument is not something you could just, you know, throw away like it's some trivial thing. It's He's like, it's you got to really wrap your head around that. That's a tough one. Um, the other one is that Dawkins uh, admits that DNA, which interestingly his quote-unquote Rebbe, Anthony Flew, became a, a theist um, or deist, um, in his late late in life because he he saw the complexity in DNA and he was like there's clearly evidence of a signature so Dawkins admits that you know yes there's this signature and there's clearly some type of intelligent design but I just it can't be God it has to be maybe it's a uh, higher intelligence like like an alien race which to me is just like okay then then you can also start that again who created that alien race you know Right. I, I mean, right. I think uh, Penrose or certain other people, even people who do go by the multiverse, they don't like, I, I heard some of them say on record, like the idea that that just can explain the fine tuning. Like they, they'll say, I, you know, I just don't like it. You know, like they, they don't 
like that idea um, that it explains everything. Um, but before I move on, I just want to before I just want to address one point that you mentioned about uh, the DNA. So the, the issue with DNA is it's uh, the argument is good. The only problem is that they have what they call the multi-planet solution. And Dawkins talks about this in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, that they want to say, look, there are many, many, many I'm sorry, planets which we observe, which are potentially hospitable to life. And therefore, they say, even if it's very, 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 very unlikely that DNA would emerge by chance, given enough planets and enough time, maybe we could just happen to get lucky once and we could just get DNA to emerge by chance. And these planets are planets which we've observed. And the difference between that and physics is that in physics, there's no observation of more than one universe. These multiverse are unobservable. They're not universe. They're, they're just outside. Everything we've ever observed is our universe and the constants are the same. And the claim is, well, there's infinitely many of these other universes out there where the things are different. The constants are different. The whole thing is, is, is made up. There's no evidence for anything like that. There's no observation of anything like that. Everything we know, they're constants and they are the same. And therefore, it's a different type of a theory. Again, I'm not saying that it works out and there's a lot to go into. And if Anthony Flew is convinced, then you know, again, I'm not, we're not experts in biology and that's, you know, the argument might hold up, but it's a totally different type of an argument when you're talking about biology, which emerges over time and there's many planets out there as opposed to the laws of nature, which are fixed on the one universe, which is observed. Yeah. yeah Aaron, you're going to say something about Penrose? Oh yeah. I was just going to mention, I mean, it happens to be Penrose um, is a real scientist and he doesn't, like the multiverse, but uh, I was mentioning the point that it's something for people to realize is we're not arguing with scientists about science. Is there is consensus among scientists? Almost all scientists believe in fine tuning. It's like it's it's a, it's a fact that if you know if you change these numbers, the the universe doesn't work out. That's agreed upon. And the question is is not a scientific argument between us and scientists or anybody else. And it's, it's the science is agreed upon. The question is the philosophical interpretation of that. How, what do you, what is the proper inference from the fact of fine tuning is, do you infer that there's an infinite number of unobservable universes with different values of the constants, or do you infer that there is one intelligent cause who set the constants for the purpose of bringing about our universe? So it's just important to realize that there's, this is not Fine tuning itself is not really, it's not really debatable. It's not, it's not, there's no real argument going on. Is there fine tuning? How much fine tuning, exact degree of fine tuning, fine. But essentially that there is these constants that create this tremendous problem. Um, that's something that scientists agree upon. It's the, what the interpretation of it is, is the question. Yeah, it sounds more like they're doing philosophical inductive reasoning to create a naturalistic uh, alternative to a creator. That's that's often what it sounds like at the end of the day. Um, but I'm curious, what's different about how you present the fine tuning argument? That's a good question. Um, that That's, it's really important how you formulate the fine tuning argument. And especially just by hearing, even hearing us talk right now, a person seems to believe that fine tuning is the problem. It's all about this fine tuning. That's the entire problem. And that's not, that's not the problem. And if you think about it that way, you, you the, the argument ends up having holes in it. If you think fine tuning is the problem, the real problem is what Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, Richard Feynman called one of the greatest mysteries in physics. And that is how you explain the constants themselves before fine tuning, nothing to do with fine tuning. 
it, it, scientists are always trying to explain, um, explain one level of reality with a deeper explanation. They're looking for a unified theory that explains everything. It's, the, it's this quest, this great quest for a unified theory of everything. And in that quest, they've gotten very close. They've nailed, they've really um, reduced the laws of nature to the fewest, simplest that they can. Right now, it's general relativity and quantum mechanics. And they have, and they're, and they're really, at least to a physicist, they're beautiful theories. They're simple, they're elegant, they're, they're coherent. They would love to unify those to, even further to have only one, um, one unified theory that explains everything. But they have that, and then they have these 25 numbers. And these 25 numbers, they're just the exact opposite of what they're looking for. They're these, these random strings of numbers, like, well, you know, the, the fine structure constant, 137.039999136 or something like that. And, and all these numbers, they're just, if you, when you look them up, they're just these bizarre numbers. They seem completely arbitrary. They're, they're, they have no, um, they, there's no, seems to be no rhyme or reason for them, no deeper way to explain them. And in their quest for the theory of everything, the scientists are looking for the theory that explains the basis of all reality. They end up with one or two beautiful, wonderful, um, compelling laws of nature, qualitative laws of nature, and 25 numbers, like a list of data. And it's just the complete opposite of what they're looking for. And that leads them to the mystery of the constants. How do you explain a number? How can you, are these numbers fundamental? Are they truly the basis of all reality is, General relativity, quantum mechanics, and 25 numbers, those are like the basis of all reality, no deeper explanation. And if there is a deeper explanation, how do you explain that number? What kind of theory is going to naturally pop out these exact precise numbers? And if there is a true theory of everything that explains these numbers, it has to explain them down to the last decimal spot because it's a theory of everything. And that seems to be highly implausible that they're gonna find some deeper qualitative explanation that's gonna yield these exact numbers, these 25 numbers. That's the mystery of the constants. It has nothing to do with fine tuning. Fine tuning was discovered later on. Fine tuning was, was something that came later on in the game and it becomes the clue for the solution. It's not the problem, it's the clue that points to the solution that answers the mystery of the constants. Okay, so let me just um, actually give an analogy to help understand the problem of the mystery of the constants. And again, this is, as Aaron's saying, this is prior to fine-tuning, nothing to do with fine-tuning. It has to do with trying to understand the laws of nature, the cause of the laws of nature, what, what truly explains everything in our universe. And the analogy is from ethical systems. So imagine you have a society, and a society, many societies have uh, sets of laws. So you may have laws like don't kill, don't steal, don't slander, give charity, don't charge interest, a whole set of laws. And you might have a whole list of tens of laws in this society. And you might try to conceptualize and to simplify and to unify the ethical system in the society. And someone might propose that I know what this, this society is governed by a law that says, do unto others as you want done to yourself, something like that. And this is a common law, as many people say, like, that is interpreted by Chazal. So the idea is like, do unto others as you want unto yourself. That's why that explains everything. You can't steal, you can't cheat, you can't, uh, you know, you can't kill, you should give charity, you should, you can't charge interest. And you might have this one qualitative law, which would explain all the different laws. And that's kind of an idea, like a unified theory, where you have one law or one principle, which is responsible for all the other different laws. And that's insight. 
That's what physicists are trying to do. They're trying to take all the complex phenomenon they see and reduce it to one or as one or as few as possible. And that would be like an example of that law. But now imagine in that society, besides for all these laws, the laws themselves might have constants. They may have numbers to them. So for example, you might have the society has that you have to give charity. Well, how much charity? So imagine in the society, the law was that you have to give 18.37426% of your money to charity. Or let's say you're not allowed to charge interest more than 19.74327%. And the society has, besides for these laws, which are these qualitative laws, they also have these quantities which are built into the laws. Now, if you think about trying to now explain the society and the laws of the society, while before we got to those quantities, it seemed reasonable that this law, do unto others as you want done to yourself, could explain all the qualitative laws. But how in the world are you going to explain those weird numbers? What is, what's doing to others, you want to yourself? Don't make sure you give them 19.87462 charity, percent charity. It's like, well, how would you explain such a thing? And this is the type of ideas that scientists were trying to explain everything in our universe based upon laws, but these constants were a mystery. And that's what Feynman called the greatest mystery in physics, this explaining these types of numbers. This, again, has nothing at all to do with fine tuning. This existed before fine tuning came along. So um, with numbers, this, is a, this might, forgive me if this is a little too esoteric or beyond the scope of this conversation, but I know you're a numbers guy. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a discussion about whether numbers are real or they're like built into the universe or um, they're just sort of like our own minds projections and our interaction or interfacing with the universe. I'm curious where you stand on this. Right. Yeah, so listen, I think as Galileo said that the language of our universe is mathematics and uh, something to that effect. And it seems like the laws of physics and the success of modern science has shown that the laws are expressed in the language of mathematics and numbers. And that being the case, I'm not sure there's different ways to ask that question about math and about the numbers, but it does seem to be that that is the language of our universe and the Chachmas Hashem, which is evident in the universe, works through numbers. So is there a question, do numbers have this pure existence in, in, in like an abstract ontological type of sense? Or, But it just seems to be that, at least insofar as physics are concerned, it seems the language in which God wrote our universe is one of numbers. You don't think God was compelled to follow the numbers like there are these numbers and God has to obey that. There are people who, a lot of um, mathematicians actually believe in this uh, kind of um, platonic mathematical universe almost and um, right. you know and there's some people think that's wacky and crazy but I, you know. I, just... well, I don't think God is compelled to do anything but, um, but you know the, these are the deep conversations about numbers and all that but again I think the numbers are you know ultimately God created everything Ishmael and I don't think numbers predate you know anything else. But, you know, I would I would just add one point though is that is there there are people who think that way like it's called mathematical Platonism like you know Plato's world of forms the world of numbers and people have tried to come at it from that angle to solve this problem. Feynman talks about that. It's people who try to like take these numbers and show how they derive from pure mathematics. And in there's really it's, it's again it is a more esoteric point. There's certain certain things called mathematical constants, special numbers in mathematics that originate, that have nothing to do with the physical world, like for example, pi, right? The circumference of uh, the ratio, the circumference of a circle to its ratio in Euclidean space is pi. 
or there's E, the base of natural logarithms, whatever. There's a few of these mathematical constants that have nothing to do with the physical world that just have to do with pure mathematics. And people try to connect these physical constants, the constants about the rate of expansion of the universe or the mass of an electron to these mathematical constants and different combinations of them. And it just, they were, they, they've tried for over a hundred years. Feynman at that point was talking about it. They were tried for over 50 years. Every day, another, and every week, another paper comes out through different, you know, pi to the fourth power divided by E equals this fine structure constant, different things like that. And then they measure it to one more decimal plate, the fine structure constant, one more decimal place. And they realize it didn't work out, you know, and, and basically eventually they completely gave up doing that. But that's exactly what, you, what you're talking about, Sabo, of trying to really derive the, the constants of nature of physics from mathematics and it's been tried and it's been failed and basically everybody gave up right they, they try to say that you know you don't need a god you can just say all oh, these numbers these laws somehow exist and then create everything but yeah that that that's a good explanation it, it, do, it doesn't sound like it can work so yeah that's part of the mystery that's that was part of the if you could have done that they could have done that shown how these abstract mathematical constants somehow combined to make physical constants, that would have been some type of explanation, it would have given them an indication. But there, there isn't, that, that it just didn't work. It's it basically became a joke that everybody kept trying and it didn't work out. And that's, that's part of the root of the mystery. How do you explain these numbers that are part of nature that we observe empirically and we measure if you can't explain them theoretically through mathematics? Fascinating. So I wanted to know what. Wait, what do you want to continue? I'm sorry, and you want to so based upon that. That so once again, the mystery was the backdrop, the mystery of the constants, and this was again, the, this was a problem which existed prior to discovery of fine tuning. Where do these numbers come from? And then they had this discovery of fine tuning. They realized that although the numbers, from the standpoint of physics, seem to be just these arbitrary, crazy numbers, 137.1379992926, whatever, it, it, it was discovered that they're not as arbitrary as they seemed. And if you change those numbers, while it's true, the laws of physics themselves would be the same and nothing would change. But what would those laws of physics result in? And it turns out that that's the discovery of fine-tuning, that the laws of physics would change, but you'd never have atoms, you'd never have molecules, you'd never have stars, you'd never have planets, you'd never have life. And that's the discovery is that the solution or the clue which led towards the solution of this mystery was the discovery. And this is, again, it was a discovery. It's in the early 70s, 80s, and 98 was the, the discovery of this thing called the cosmological constant. They discovered how these numbers weren't as arbitrary as they had thought, let's say, at the time of Feynman. They thought they were arbitrary and they could just be anything. And why are they these random numbers? They found their solution. These numbers are not arbitrary. They were specifically the numbers which were needed. The numbers had to be within the small range in order to result in the unfolding to be able to be our universe. And this was, this was a, a discovery. It was a surprising discovery. And now when you're trying to understand the laws of physics and trying to understand these numbers, you can't just ignore that discovery. You can't just say, oh, let's, I, I don't like fine tuning. I don't like that the numbers are that way, having something to do with their resultant universe, which will come from it. Let's forget about that. Let's look for some other explanation for our numbers. That's just ignoring the knowledge. Fine-tuning is a knowledge, which was a discovery of, which helped shed light on the mystery of the constants. And it would be like going going back to our analogy. Yeah, go ahead, yeah just before, before we get to the analogy, we get this question a lot of why isn't this God of the gaps? When people think, well, you know, you're asking this great mystery, how do you explain these constants? 
people always assume, oh, you're just going to say there's this big mystery. How do you explain these numbers? Scientists can't explain these numbers. They have nothing to do with the mathematical constants. They have nothing to do with any other way of explaining it. The theory of everything can't explain it. So now you're just going to say, okay, God must have done it. That sounds like a God of the gaps. You just have this great mystery. You don't know how to explain it through science. So you're saying God did it. But the point of fine tuning, that's where fine tuning comes in. Because like Ellie was just saying, fine tuning is a type of a knowledge. It's not, it's not the mystery. If, if you just said, I have this big mystery over the constants, and therefore God did it, that is faulty logic. That's God of the gaps reasoning. But at that point, when you just have a mystery, you don't say God did it. You have to first get knowledge of fine tuning. Fine tuning is the clue. It's the, to the solution that God did it because fine tuning is scientific knowledge that if these numbers were any different, you don't get atoms and molecules and galaxies. So it's showing you, it's showing you how once you study these numbers and you understand physics, you see that if, if, if these numbers were different, that the, that, that, you know, things don't work out in the universe, you start to realize the numbers are not arbitrary. The whole mystery of the constants comes from the fact that you're just assuming these are random strings of numbers, 137.039. How do you explain that? Yeah, but once I see this range, and if it was 138, there's no atoms. 136, there's no atoms. Now I have a type of an explanation. I could say, yeah, the reason why it's 137 is in order to get atoms. And whoever set these constants had an objective of getting a universe with atoms and molecules and planets and stars and galaxies and life. So that's already show that's based upon scientific knowledge. You have an explanation. It's called the teleological explanation. There was a purpose for these constants, and that explains why the constants have their value. That's not God of the gaps reasoning anymore. It, you're not just saying, I don't know how these constants came from. Maybe God did it. You say, I don't know how these constants came from. I have a mystery. Now I have scientific knowledge of fine tuning, and that allows me to infer that there's an intelligent cause for the constants. Brilliant explanation. So you guys, have been, you guys have been holding out on us for so many years after the blog. So what happened to the blog and what did you, you know, what did you do uh, after that? Great question. So I just want to just to go back to uh, just follow up on Aaron's point and I'll get to, your, to answer your question in a second. So going back to the analogy of the, um, you know, the ethical system. So imagine it were discovered, and again, this is just an analogy to uh, to the idea of discovery of fine tuning, is we had this ethical system, we were trying to explain, how could you explain the percentage of charity, 18.457, whatever percent. Now, let's say there was discovered by through rigorous economical calculations, which again, isn't reasonable in economics, but imagine, imagine such a thing were possible. Let's say they discovered that if you had the rate of charity would be less than, let's say, 18%, then poor people would rebel and they would end up undermining society because they just, it's not enough money, they're not going to be able to live on it. And if the calculate imagine the calculations would show that less than 18% would not lead to a stable society, it would lead to class warfare. And let's say the rate of, they should also be able to show that, let's say the rate of charity were more than 20%. You say more than 20%, then well, then rich people aren't going to want to work because they say, hey, I might as well be on charity. It's not worth it for me to work. And therefore, that would also undermine the productivity of society. Again, these are just hypotheticals. But the idea of a discovery of fine-tuning would be if you would somehow be able to show rigorously, mathematically, that the number, the, the rate of charity, which is, let's say, 18.45, whatever percent, it has to be within that small range in order to lead to a stable, productive society. If that, if that were to be discovered, then you'd say, oh, now those numbers aren't as arbitrary as they seemed, but the numbers 
are based upon their objective, based upon their purpose. These are the numbers which are needed in order to result in a stable, peaceful society. That's analogous to the discovery of fine-tuning. And not just the numbers seem to be arbitrary, but the discovery of fine-tuning showed, no, it's not true. Those numbers are the, the numbers, the, within a range of numbers which are necessary to lead to, to a universe unfolding. So after we, after we did the blog and we had a um, nice conversation with a lot of people about it, we, at some point, I can't remember how long afterwards, but we decided that we wanted to make the arguments more formal and to really spell them out in a much more rigorous way. And we had this idea of writing a book and to actually, to, again, to spell out the arguments, to develop it slowly, carefully. And so we thought about it. We pondered doing it for, for a while. And then we said, you know what, let's do it. And sure enough, it was a very, very long project. We spent, I don't know, almost 10 years writing a book and we on and off, we, you know, we learn, we learn Torah a lot, but we also discuss these things a lot. So we went back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, we must have written every chapter like a half a dozen times back and forth. And we passed it. I wrote and he wrote and I wrote and he wrote. And it was kind of an interesting, we had an interesting dynamic. And um, as Adam, perhaps you could pick up a little bit is that oftentimes we have two different styles of, I guess, of teaching and of explaining and of writing. And Aaron's like, um, you know, would write the, the, for example, this is oftentimes how things would work. Aaron would write a chapter and he'd write it like very, like, I guess you could say complicated. I would say call it complicated. Maybe he'd call it something else, you know, but it would be like very, you know, complex and uh, maybe esoteric, hard to understand. And then I would take it and I would simplify it. And I would kind of, again, I, I'm by, by profession. Again, I'm, I, teach, I teach Torah and I also am a, I'm a math professor. So, uh, and I teach students, I'm a community college. So I teach students who are uh, very weak. And um, so I guess I have, I have um, practice in trying to take topics which are hard for students to understand and try to break it down. So again, so I try to simplify it and then he's making it more complicated and I'm simplifying it. And again, we'd pass it back and forth and back and forth. And that's kind of the way it was. And we spent, again, we spent a long time on, on writing this book. And, you know, I guess we, we realize that there's a basic structure to the way we, we, we thought to, to present the argument. So Aaron, you want to talk a little bit about the... Um, about the, the three uh, parts yeah. to the... Um, so basically we realized that it really, you really need three separate parts for this argument to be compelling. The first one is the basic argument, which kind of discussed just now the argument of fine-tuning, from the mystery to fine-tuning, developing how that points to an intelligent cause for the universe. There happens to be two other separate independent arguments from the qualitative laws of nature and the initial conditions of the universe that all form part one of the book, just showing the solid inference to an intelligent cause. But then for the argument to be compelling, you really have to take up scientist theory of a multiverse. And you have to take it up in detail. You have to take it seriously. You can't just say it's crazy science fiction because these are the, some of the smartest people in the world who are saying multiverse. And if you don't take it seriously and really deconstruct it, what their premises are, what their assumptions are, what their evidence is, and ultimately show the real flaw of why it doesn't work in their own framework, you're not really going to convince somebody who's serious. You can convince somebody who's just willing to say that it's just crazy and stupid. And there is, there are people who are just intuitively just going to say, listen, I mean, I'm not going to believe in infinite number of, of parallel dimensions and in universes and all these different things. That just sounds crazy. But there are people who take scientists seriously. And I think people, you should. There's very intelligent people. And they're not just saying something absolutely crazy. You have to really go into it and see what, 
what's wrong with it. That's the second part of our book. It's basically the multiverse. And the third thing is, like we explained before, you have to explain the idea of God. You can't just say God did it. You have to explain, you have to answer the questions, the classic questions people ask against God. What caused God? If God fine-tuned the constants, who fine-tuned God? What does God even mean when you're saying the idea of God? Uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of um, classic questions that people have against God. And we basically have an, a third of our book is devoted to really explain the idea of Yichar Hashem, the idea of, and, and we did it specifically. It's not based on any religion. It's not based upon authority. It's not based upon, you know, the Rambam says this, it's not Sajagon, it's not based on anything like that. We're showing through proper philosophical thinking. And we specifically make, show every one of these categories that people have about God, what caused God. Ultimately, you have to show that God is truly fundamental. He has no cause. We show how scientists in all these categories, scientists use these categories to explain scientific theory. So for, let's just say for that example, scientists, when you get to, when they believe, and you know, Stephen Hawking, we, we show, you know, spe, spe, spells this out in detail, you know, uh, um, but like, where do the laws of nature come from? Well, they just say, look, that is the ultimate base of reality is the qualitative laws of nature from quantum mechanics. You know, the, Stephen Hawking had, had this theory at one point that, you know, nothing is unstable and the universe is popping into existence. Okay, fine. But uh, not getting into that particular thing, but then you say, where do the laws of nature come from? Where does quantum mechanics come from? Which is, that's just, that's a reality. That's an uncaused existence, quantum mechanics. It has no deeper cause. That's just a fact of nature. And that's okay. We should, that's the thing wrong with scientists. Everybody's going to have to come back to at some point where they just say, that's the way it is. And that's just one example. We show that scientists have this idea of a fundamental uncaused existence. They just hold it's a complex physics equation as opposed to one simple God. But we show through all the categories of Yichad Hashem, how God is one, how he's unique, how he's simple, how he has no cause, and go by one by one how these concepts answer all the questions atheists have against God. We make it rigorous and compelling and coherent, and we bring in examples from physics. And, and, and all these all these advanced categories that physicists use nowadays and show how those same categories apply apply um, in terms of the human mind to thinking about God. And it's not just, we're not just creating categories. These are the categories of thought that scientists use when they're explaining fundamental existences. And therefore, it's the appropriate method of thought for dealing with a fundamental existence like God. And that's something we do in the third part, which we devote to Yichad Hashem. Okay, so the Yichud Hashem aspect, I'm actually curious because, you know, I, I remember years ago I was reading, for, for whatever reason, I was like uh, in a Chabad and they had these like, uh, these Tanakhs or these Hamisha uh, Chumshe Torah of uh, Rabbi Berg, you know, the Kabbalah Center. And I opened it up and I see Michio Kaku, famous, uh, you know, I don't think he's a physicist. So he, yeah, he he's writing about, uh, you know, how this, he's comparing kind of like the Sphero to the, you know, to the string theory, string theory it was very strange, whatever it is. But I think that it made me think right now, what you just said is that a lot of Jews um, have maybe a misunderstanding of what God is. And yeah. maybe if I, th I think the Maimonidean approach actually solves a lot of the issues in our episode that we did earlier with Rabbi Maruf on Spinoza and atheism, we actually, he actually pointed this out. He said, if everybody just understood the Maimonidean model of of God and the universe, and we wouldn't have any of these issues. So maybe mm -hmm. you can expand on, on that idea. 
Well, I'll tell you uh, on, on a personal level. So when I was um, when I was younger, so I, I loved the Rambam, the Mornavuchim. It was you know eye opening. It changed my life. Showed me a rational approach to Judaism. But at some point, and I I was a little disenchanted by the Rambam, and I'm, I came back to my love of the Rambam. Okay, but <laughs> there was a period in my life where I get very frustrated with the Rambam because the Rambam, and again, no fault of his own, it's just the Mornavuchim, even the Mishnah Torah. It's it's intermingled his whole system with Aristotelian physics. And it's very difficult to, to like, for example, the active intellect. It's such a, plays such a prominent role in the Rambam's philosophy and how he explains certain things that it, it becomes very difficult. How do you, how do you disengage? So I, I didn't believe in the active intellect. It didn't make sense. The whole category of active intellect didn't really make sense to me. I'm going to try to explain how the Rambam thinks about Aristotle thought about it. But it became very difficult for me to cut out from the Rambam Aristotelian physics and to keep what remained. I wasn't able to do that. This was in my early 20s. I couldn't do that. I kind of left the Rambam aside for for maybe, a, a, you know, maybe even a decade or so. I was involved in the Ramban and, and Rashi. And eventually I, I came back to the Rambam and it really was, I needed more modern physics, which was, which is kind of interesting is I really needed to understand modern science better. And I needed to understand the Rambam better. My mind had to develop. I had to, you know, learn more Gemara really, which is a funny, funny idea for this, but you know, the learning Gemara through the Brisker method, it really helped train my mind to think categorically. And what I set out to do and was to try to try to see what from the Rambam what about his philosophy still works nowadays, still is very good. And, you know, what ideas um, are just tied to Aristotle and don't really work anymore. And to try to reformulate the Rambam, the core ideas of the Rambam that are necessary for Yichr Hashem, how he thinks about the eternity of the universe, um, prophecy, different different types of things. Again, I, we don't discuss prophecy in, in uh, on our podcast. Again, it's but we, we will at some point discuss the question of, the eternity of the universe. Um, I think that comes up in the third mini series about God, uh, interestingly enough. But um, the idea was to really be able to formulate the Rambam with, in a framework of modern physics. And we do that. That's really this third part about, about God and Yichad Hashem. It's, 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 not ex- it's not exactly the Rambam, but very close to it, but in the context of modern physics without any, without any of the Aristotelian science. And that's that's what's I think is, is really interesting about this that third mini series is having these ideas from our Masora, but formulating in the context of modern physics without having any of the ancient physics, which isn't really correct anymore. Yeah, and I think it's very clear that Rambam would want you to do that. You know, that not not to stick to an old, outdated science. Um, so I, I actually think you know what our listeners should get out of this is that this is so important. No one else is doing this, and what you guys are doing is really groundbreaking and uh, very exciting. We're very excited about it because now we want to, you know, talk about what you guys are doing, which is the podcast, um, Physics to God. How did you get this idea of making a podcast? Good idea. Good question. So we again we spent a long time on writing our book, as I, as I mentioned, and we wanted the book, I guess, to be rigorous. We wanted to make an argument and not just to wave our hands and say, this shows God, but we wanted to really spell out the argument as clear and as thoroughly as possible and to take up all the questions. And by the time we were done, we realized that it, it was like too 
rigorous, too dense for a layman, if you will. And we wanted to reach your average person. We didn't think these ideas are so so sophisticated and so hard and so out of the reach of, of people. But because we wanted to be thorough and rigorous, we ended up writing it in a way that was too it was too hard for um, for people to read and it was too dense. And we thought that we we but it was we put so much time into getting these ideas clear. We just felt we we needed a different medium, a different way to convey these ideas in a way that could reach the plain person. And that's what ended up happening is we thought. Someone mentioned this idea of why don't we try to make a podcast? Podcasts are all the thing these days. And we have a lot of experience teaching and trying to explain things to people and breaking it down and simplifying it. And again, we both are involved in teaching Torah and then I teach math. And I, you know, so we just thought it would be a good idea is to try to take the same ideas which we spent developing and using, you know, trying to present them into bite-sized pieces and to making a podcast and to breaking them down and to simplifying and to coming up with analogies and to presenting it in a way that really would talk to people in a more, we try to make it a little more entertaining, try to be more friendly. We try to give, to give examples. Again, it's just, it's just, uh, that's the idea as we thought this is going to be a better forum to be able to reach people. And I think hopefully again, when we, we try to look into a book is like, oftentimes you need a, you need a, um, you need to build an audience where people would be interested in the book. And we thought this is, again, we don't, we don't want to, we still think the book will have a great place and it's a more rigorous, full, full presentation of the ideas. But at the same time, we think these ideas could be understood and, re, and appreciated by people as long as we're able to simplify it. And that's kind of the ideas we decided to make, the, the take the three parts of our book and make it into three separate mini-series. And basically we're making a podcast. And so far we've released... Um, four episodes so far and where again each of these are going to have three mini series each of which is going to be approximately 10 episodes and we're basically going to be trying to take take the listeners to be able to go through the process through step by step and develop uh you know leading to present these ideas what's that i think the animations were a great touch yeah so that's what yeah go ahead yeah so that's what we thought get to, to you know bigger wider audiences yeah that's what we advise by people is again this is a part of the problem is that people are afraid of physics and are afraid of math. Again, I teach students. I just know people. I even tell people I'm a math major. I'm a math guy. And I often see people's face. So they like shriek and they look back and they're, you know, people have a fear of math and physics is probably even more so. It just sounds scary. It sounds hard. And we think that these ideas are not that hard. Of course, they're, they're difficult and a person has to be willing to think. But at the same time, we are trying to reach a person who doesn't have a background in math or in, in strong background in math or science. And that's what we're trying to make it more entertaining. We try, we're making, again, we also have YouTube videos, which are animated. And again, it's, we're trying to lighten up the tone because we do think that, again, we don't want to scare anybody off. And we, again, we, the book was very in, intense and we're trying to, again, make it more friendly, more user-friendly to be able to appeal to people who are, you know, who just give it a chance and who are going to, take the ideas and so far we've received a lot of good feedback and people are liking it and it's again the ideas are hopefully being presented in a way which is gonna you know work slowly work through the ideas amazing and what you know values do does your podcast have for a religious person so 
So, I mean, I'm assuming you mean like in the context of um, a religious person, not just somebody who uh, wants to believe in God, but I mean like somebody right. like in terms of the Torah, things like that. And like, so we, um, yeah, we get, we kind of get that question a lot about people who are really, they're concerned about divine providence. How do you prove the Torah? How do I know there's Hashgacha Pratis that relates to me? And, you know, is our podcast going to take that up? So, uh, you know, on the, we don't know, we might eventually get to those topics. Right now, um, we're planning on converting the book into the podcast form. And it's, it's really, it's not a religious, um, it's not specifically for um, a religious audience. It's for religious and a non-religious audience. But I do think still the idea of, of God and the ideas on the podcast have a, do have a tremendous significance for a religious person. Um, Besides for the fact that God is obviously the foundation of any religion. And one of the ways to know God is by studying his wisdom that's in the creation that leads you to the, to the love of God. But also that this conflict that exists between religion and the modern world, where you know a lot of people, especially in the modern Orthodox community, um, Jews, and I'm assuming other religions, I, again, I don't, I don't know. But um, I don't know them on a personal level. But there's this conflict that comes from the fact that our society really esteems scientists. And it values science and, and philosophy and, and the secular knowledge. And there's just this tremendous um, regard that people have for scientists. But then you know, and every kid in high school, modern Orthodox high school knows that scientists are atheists. They don't believe in God. And scientists don't believe that the Torah is true. And they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in Ashkacha practice. And, you know, a, a lot of these kids have, like, I'm not saying everybody, some kids they just say faith and they're happy with that and they go on their way. And that's, you know, I'm not, we're not speaking to those, uh, to those kids. That's not really the target of our, of our audience, but uh, our, our target audience. But there are a lot of people who have this trouble with the fact that the secular, philosophical, respected scientific world doesn't believe in the Torah. And I think when a person sees, we'll go through the podcast, go through the, um, the different, the three different miniseries. And they start to realize that they could see with their own mind that there is a good, strong argument here that's convincing. Scientists hear that, but they end up saying multiverse, which is this infinite number of unobservable realities, completely different. Scientists discuss changing the scientific method to accommodate the multiverse. And then they see that the questions that scientists ask about God, about Yichad Hashem, there actually are good explanations for it that are not outdated and ancient but work within a context of modern philosophy and modern science, that I think will give a, a modern Orthodox person the confidence to say, you know what, just like scientists were wrong about God, I can see that God exists with my own mind from science. And these scientists are just making things, I don't want to say making things up, it's too harsh, but these scientists are denying the idea of Yichad Maybe perhaps the scientists don't fully appreciate what Yichad means and they're pausing infinite numbers of universes, maybe just like they're wrong about that. And, I could, and hopefully the listener will be able to have firsthand knowledge why the scientists are wrong about this, about wrong about God's existence. That will give a person confidence to say, you know what, maybe these scientists are wrong about the Torah. Maybe they're wrong about these other things. And I shouldn't just accept the fact that scientists reject the Torah. I should have to look into this with my own mind and don't just, be, don't just have these guys in, in this high regard and esteem and they must be right. These guys are the ones who are believing an infinite number of parallel universe that nobody can observe. And that, that, I think, really can give a person confidence that just like scientists are wrong about God, they're wrong about the Torah also. 
Right. Yeah. I'd like to add just to add another point is that um, you know the Ramam talks about that Avas Hashem often could come from when a person sees the great Chachma in the universe, the great wisdom in all the different facets of the universe. And we really are trying to make this podcast in a way that besides being an argument for God, explains the science, explains the different facets of our universe, breaks down the science and allows you to really appreciate the Chachma, which is implicit in our universe, to see how the laws work together, how God fine-tuned the constants to be able to yield our unbelievable amazing universe and through seeing this it really gives a person even if a person already says look i already know god is true and i have any problems and i have I, but still you could see the chachma sashem it gives you a like a first-hand window into the of course on on a, on a basic level but you get to see the the different facets of the chachma sashem which is built in the universe and i think through seeing that it could really lead a person to, sashem, to truly have an appreciation for the wonder in creation of course, there's there's a lot of inspiration to get from understanding these things. Um, so before we go, first of all, we want to thank you for making the time, and uh, this is really amazing. And um, we wanted to just ask you where people can find the podcast. Yeah, so you can find it on on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. You could also get it on YouTube. We have the we're slowly making an animated version of it. That's um, Physics to God. You can search. Also, our website is physicstogod.com, and that has links to all the different uh, platforms. And we plan, again, our, our basic plan is to be releasing the podcast. We just released episode four today, tonight after Shabbos. And I think uh, we're, our plan is to release another episode, at least through the first miniseries, release every other week or so. So um, also, if you want to discuss, if you have questions, again, we'd love this to be interactive. If anyone has questions, you can post on our website. We have a forum or on, we have a YouTube group, Facebook, um, called, I'm sorry, we have a Facebook group, Physics to God. And we'd love to, you know, get a conversation going. And again, we want to teach people. We're here to be able to explain these ideas, not just to present them, but to be able to have feedback and get people involved in the conversation. And again, we'd love to reach people at their level and take up whatever questions people have. So you know, thank, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to talk and to, you know, spread the message and teach, you know, try to get these ideas out there. Pleasure. Thank Anytime. you so much. Great to meet you. Sure. Yeah, you two guys, sure. we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Shavuotov. Shavuotov. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.